When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and I'm Esther Ikoro, and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard, and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going great. Today's a pretty big day for us. It is such a big day. What? And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing something completely different. We're starting our new series and our new season on a completely new foot. Why yeah. are we doing that? What's happening today, Esther? Today we have our first guest on the Honest Field Guide podcast. We have Tina amazing, Clark. The amazing Tina Clark. Wow. I don't even know where to go from there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. I mean, you you're this is the first time we've had a guest and it was so important that we had you on the show because you Dang. are such an inspiration to me, to Esther, and to so many people. Well, first of all, I'm humbled. And second of all, that's so sweet. And third of y'all, y'all couldn't find anybody better. (laughs) (laughs) You are better. So just briefly, I want to just, you know, read a little introduction about you, Tina, since this is such a special, um, a special day for us, um, our debut of a guest. Um, Tina Clark is the CEO and Chief Creative Officer for DMI Music and Media Solutions, the company that you envisioned over 20 years ago, a creative pioneer's DMI was at the forefront of entertainment and music marketing, from creating a brand's unique sound and driving audio strategy to developing a brand campaign around major entertainment property. DMI's original music production, music licensing services, and live events development connects brands to their consumers through the power of music. I love that. That's amazing. Why don't we, I would love to just sort of start this off by, by, by hearing in your own words, you know, what, what is DMI to you? Because... I also should mention, I mean, you're you're a woman that wears many hats. I mean, you're an author of an amazing book called Southern Discomfort, a memoir, which you just released. Um, you're an entrepreneur. You're a songwriter. You, you're a musician. You're a mother. Um, you're not you know, a, officially a person who has done a talk at Google. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Just did a talk at Google, which is amazing. So talk a little bit, though, about DMI Music and, you know, why in the world did you did you start DMI? Well, that's a great question because it's it was a need at a time I felt like to stay relevant and stay alive in music. Um, in 1996, I started the company in 1997, and in 199 up to 1997, I had never done anything but write and produce music for film, for television, for records, for commercials. Um, etc. Stage. It was about at the time where the, the the internet really came to the forefront of everybody's mind in the music business. Not that it wasn't there before, but it got really serious. It was Napster. It was this. It was that. And so it was like, okay. I mean, half of my colleagues were saying, "Run for the hills." The music industry's over. The other half said, "Oh, it's fine. It's not going to change anything in the music business." Well, at the time, I was um, partnering with Miles Copeland, who Miles discovered the police, and he managed Sting for many, many years, many decades. And um, Miles was a powerhouse, and he also used to manage me, but then we decided we were going to start a label together. And then I also was producing special special projects, meaning producing as a music producer, for Miles' other label. Well, that's what I was doing at the time. And then I'd been with him for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, this kind of epiphany of what was going on around me in the music business. 
And it wasn't like run for the hills to me, but it wasn't like also that nothing's going to change because I knew it was. At least I felt that in my gut. Well, all I cared about selfishly, I have to say, as far as my career was I didn't know anything but music and I just wanted to keep doing music. So if everything changes and I can't really write and produce the way I always have and if certain areas are going to dry up and what do I know? How, where is there a supply and a demand? And I think with any career in business that you're looking at, especially from an entrepreneur, you can have a great idea, but you got to really look at what is the supply and demand? What is missing? What is the missing link in an industry that you feel like you can fill? And for me, that was with brands because I knew enough. I had enough knowledge from being a music production house for Leo Burnett in Chicago um, for many years that that was a small, tiny sliver of my career. But at the same time, I felt like I knew enough about branding to be dangerous. And what I did know from all the campaigns I had worked on is through all my career in the music business, it was really a faux pas for artists to be connected with the brand. Those were the days that you were looked at as a has-been or you were looked at as a sellout or whatever if you did anything for a brand and connected to a brand. So nobody wanted anything to do with brands. Um, but brands, obviously, they wanted to be connected with artists. But if they did get an artist to do anything with them, they paid them like, ridiculous amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, it was a really, it was a, it wasn't an equal playing field. But how did you, I mean, the thing that, that I'm, that I'm really curious about, I mean, that's, an, that's awesome that you, you know, talked about being an early pioneer in, you know, brand strategy and brand development as far as music is concerned, is concerned. Um, you know, I have a band, Utah Carol, and um, we didn't start off doing music for advertising and film at all. We started doing music because we had a band and we were writing for ourselves and we went on tour and things like that. But, but what I'm kind of curious about is what, at what point did you realize that you were going to start a business though? Cause you know, you, you, you obviously were a musician. You must've been writing songs as a child. I mean, how did you convert this creative spirit into something that is monetized in terms of a business? Because that's a place where a lot of entrepreneurs have trouble. Is, is how do I get my creativity out there in a way that I can make money? It's, it's a hard, hard thing to do. How did you do it? Because it was what I was saying. It was about supply and demand. So when I looked at that need there and I thought, okay, artists are not going to have the promotions, promotion money they would normally have because everything's changing. So labels are going to start just putting their promotion money into their biggest artists. But now they're not going to be out there taking risk on, risk on all of these other artists giving promotion money. Things are going to dry up really fast. Um, there's going to be a climate change. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when I look at brands who have tons of money that want art, the artist connection, that's going to be their promotion. Mm. So my vision was to connect consumers to brand, really get the science behind this, Mm -hmm. to connect consumers to brands through the power, emotional power of music. So that's where we started. And the first first client I ever had was, it was one of those things where, you know, you hear that joke about, you know, the dog that's, the chihuahua that's always chasing the the car. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And then what does the chihuahua do when it catches the car? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, it was, does the chihu- what does the chihuahua do when it catches the car? Well, it's just bit off more than it can chew. So, <laughs> so, so, or it gets run over. So our very first client, and we were tiny. I mean, I had just mm-hmm. opened the company. But the guy at the time who was the head of Leo Burnett I told him about my idea. I had a pitch for United Airlines. I was here in Chicago, where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want to set you up a meeting with United Airlines. I want them to see your pitch. Wow. Because I'd created a pitch for United. How did you get in that room to have that opportunity? With United? I mean, yeah. I mean, even with Leo Burnett. I mean, what was what conditions existed that 
you were present in the room. And I ask you this because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you're out gay. How mm-hmm. did you get in a space where you were believed at the table that you could deliver? How did that happen? Because mm-hmm. a lot of us in this space, you know, I'm African-American. Esther's African-American. We're both women. And we have challenges around sitting in a room and people look at us and they believe what we're saying, you know? So what, what, what was that like? Well, how I got in, I'll take you back for a minute. How I got into Burnett was I had moved to Nashville from Mississippi to write, but on the side, I happened to manage this African-American male artist to me, who was the best male artist in R&B I'd ever heard in my life. What was his name? His name was Tony Warren. You've okay. never heard of him. Um, he was from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I knew him in Mississippi. I brought him to Nashville with me, and I knew he. I knew I wouldn't get him a deal in Nashville, but I knew eventually I would get to L.A. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to get him any gig I could at the time. And so in Nashville, because there were not any black, really, R&B singers there at that time, somebody called me and said, Leo Burnett is in town. They're shooting some McDonald's commercials, and they need a black male artist for um, this uh, commercial to sing. And what about the guy that you manage? I said, oh, that would be fantastic. So I go. I take him. They hear him sing. Mm -hmm. They love him. I go in the studio. There's a really big Nashville recording, um, like, producer in there. Mm Mm-hmm. He record. He produces. He produced at the time a really big um, group in Nashville. So we go in. He's got his players and the head of creative from uh, Leo Burnett. So they're in there. I don't know anything about the dynamics or whatever, but all I do know is this song is sounding like a country song with this fantastic R and B singer, and it's just like it's a perfect. It's not good. Oh, it's not good. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, Because perfect. it's Country. like, it's like, you know, they're playing it. It's written in the wrong rhythm yeah. and the charts ah, aren't, gotcha. weren't right. So I'm sitting there and I'm just like, you know, I'm this little peep. Just, I, I might as well have been serving coffee or something. Yeah. I'm just in the back. So the guy from Burnett was like, damn it, you know, no. He said, He's, it needs to be blah, 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 blah. They would try it again, he would tell the producer. So he was getting very, very frustrated. And these players, it just was not translating because it wasn't written on the page. And the guy that was producing it was country, so it's it wasn't translating to him. Yeah. Right. So anyway, they took a break because the guy at Burnett just said, you know, and he was a big guru. He was like the head of all creative, Burnett. So I'm out at the coffee pot mm-hmm. getting a cup of coffee, and he's out there, and he's just flustered and beside himself and frustrated and he goes I don't know what I'm going to do you know um and he said I I don't know how to fix this thing and I said in this little voice I do and he was like huh I said I know how to fix it and he kind of in in a respectful not disrespectful way kind of snickered a little bit you know it's like really you know how to fix it and I said yeah I know how to fix it he said, hang on a minute. So he goes out and gets sheet music. He walks back out. He says, well, fix whatever you do on there. I said, well, it's mainly just the, the rhythm. I said, a few chords need to change, but mainly the rhythm. He said, well, just change it. Let me see. Changed it. Went out there and played it. He said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Well, they record. I didn't get anything. Wow. You yeah. know, but right. the... The spot happened. So yep, he asked me to, he asked me to go to dinner that night. Mm-hmm. So I went to dinner and we became friends. And he said to me, I can't use you. He said, I really need you and I like you and you're really good. But I can't use you in Nashville because I've been using this guy for decades. We're like family. But if you ever move to L.A., I'll keep you busy. Wow. And I said, okay, I'll take you up on that. Within a year, I had ended up moving to L.A., and I called him. And he stayed true to his word. And so through him, I became good friends also with the CEO. And it was the C—and then the CEO 
was the guy that night at Burnett. We became good friends. We did a lot of business together. And they respected me. They respected my work. Mm -hmm. And they respected me as a musician. And, you know, look, they didn't, they weren't going in going, oh, I'm going to see if I can change this, Mm -hmm. this lesbian, you know, (laughs) you know, or, or whatever. Um, so it wasn't like any kind of sexist thing like that. They just respected me. And I don't want to sound Pollyannish about that because I think there's millions of women who their work is incredibly wonderful, but they get looked at as a woman first. Yeah. So what ended up happening was, you know, I go in when I'm starting this new company and this is after all these years that I've been producing stuff for them. And that's when I said to the CEO that night, I have a, I have an idea. And he said, what? And I had storyboards with me. And I said, let me show you my storyboards for United and what I want to do. And he picked up the phone that night and called the CMO at United and said, I want you to see somebody because they're going to make a big impact for you at United. I went in the next day and United... Wow has been my client for many, 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 many years. So you know what I was going to say what I love about this to me? Um, One of the things that I notice when we're out in the field working with entrepreneurs and business owners, but particularly women, um, you're expressing a confidence and a stamina and Mm -hmm. a boldness, I think, is missing sometimes, which Mm -hmm. prevents um, entrepreneurs and people that are starting businesses from moving forward. I mean, number one, when you had the opportunity to help someone who was in desperate situation, you showed up and you delivered and you nailed it. So you were prepared for this and you didn't have the fear to not walk up to this person and say, I can fix this. And so I think that that, you know, is, is some kind of an intent inside that says, I'm going to make this work and it's going to happen no matter what, what's the worst that could happen. Someone's going to say no. Well, this is what I've always said in speaking to women, MBA programs and stuff Mm -hmm. is that, For whatever reason, I have always had the tenacity that whether it's meeting big stars, meaning music stars that would want to work with or music industry people and me at the time when I was a struggling songwriter or whatever, I would, I would like, I would be like, oh my God, I want to, I want to meet them so bad. But you know, what if they, what if they, you know, make fun of me or what if they this or what if they blah, 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 blah. And then I would think to myself, what is the worst that can happen? And I would think, I can make a fool of myself. And I thought, well, I do that about every day. So what's the big deal? And I would just take a deep breath and go. And this is also what I tell young people is that you may go and take that deep breath. And I'm. And let's just paint a scenario here. I may meet that person and they and, you, and then walk away and you may think, and they may think, I'll never see that person again. And you think, well, what what good is that going to do me? Well, what good it does you is because if I'm in Philadelphia and this person is eating in a restaurant and I see them and I can stop by then again and say, oh, hey, so-and-so, I just want to say hello. Remember we met in um, New York that day when you were speaking at Google or whatever it may be. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Yeah, oh, well, good to see you. And then then life goes on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then the next time you see that person, whatever, guess what then? All of a sudden, they feel like they know you. All of a sudden, you say, hey, you know, I know we run into each other a few times. I'd really like to to be able to come in and back then, you know, everybody used to, it was not over email, but it was like, come in and meet you or can I, whatever, can you give me your assistance number? It always worked yep. because you all of a sudden have a familiarity and not mm-hmm. that you stalk somebody, mm-hmm. but seriously for me, it was just like, I would randomly see somebody. Or I would randomly know that they were going to be speaking at something and I would go, mm-hmm. but I'd already met them. Right. And then I'd meet them again. But it's about networking and it's about not being afraid to, you know, go up and talk to people. And I just really believe if you come in, if you come in and show me, I have an idea for me 
that is the missing link on the Rubik's Cube for a particular area in music. I don't care who you are or what you look like or where you come from. I go, oh, my God, I need to talk. Yes, let's talk. I think that it's about being respected in what you do and and about realizing, too, that everybody's not going to like every idea you have. And as far as songwriter, I think it's the it's the it's the greatest school you could go to because you get rejected. So much rejection. So much rejection. rejection. Just like an actor. (laughs) You get so much rejection before you get a yes. Mm -hmm. Were you ever um, kind of hesitant about putting your work out there first? Because what it sounds like you're saying to me is that you had an opportunity to show what you could do. For instance, at that McDonald's thing, and you said, I'll do it. And you didn't think twice about whether or not you'd get credit for it or not. You were kind of planting a seed. I didn't care. Right. I didn't care because... You know, I would have blown it if I'd have said, um, okay, so what am I getting for this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It It's like, no, because I just had an opportunity to prove myself to the head of creative mm-hmm. of one of the world's mm-hmm. major agencies. And he was either going to like it or he wasn't. Maybe I would have never seen him again. Mm-hmm. But he did because I helped him out in a pinch and because I knew what I was doing. It would have been different if I had changed that chart. And it wasn't good. And it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm sure I would have never seen him yeah, again. Yeah. Right. I'm sure he wouldn't have asked me to dinner that night. Mm-hmm. There was there would be nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The other piece around this, though, too, Tina, is you were paying attention, you were listening, and you were aware of your surroundings to see the opportunity in front of you. And I think that um, there are entrepreneurs that can't don't have that vision. You did talk about vision earlier when we were talking to you. Um, how do you? How did you? get the ability to have the vision and see? Or is this something that you've... Have you always had your 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 your, your spidey uh, tentacles up to sort of know what's happening? Or did you develop this over time? Because I think that's a challenge for a lot of people, especially in today's environment where technology is moving so quickly that it's hard for people to keep up. And if you're not listening to every single thing that's going on every minute, you miss some things. Well, I mean, it is a totally different time now. And there's just so much information overload. And I think it's easy to get confused. Mm. I think it's easy to second guess. And I think that you just have to go, yes, you've got to be educated in what you want to do. When educated, I mean, my feeling is that you've, you've, you've got to do your homework. I, I think that would be the best thing. You've got to do your homework and be relevant in whatever sector it is that you're trying to get across or sell or whatever, at the same time, you got to go with your gut. Because mm. any time I have not gone with my gut, I have been wrong and I have regretted it. And it doesn't mean I've completely learned how to do it, but mm. I try to listen to my gut and listen to something. You know, even if it's somebody I'm doing business with, if I don't have a good feeling about that person, I should listen to that, you know, instead of saying, oh, no, you know, whatever, mm. because there's a reason that something just mm-hmm. it doesn't yeah. sit right. Wow, you know what? That is such a hard lesson, Tina, for entrepreneurs, especially that are strapping, mm-hmm. that are broke, that are really struggling. Well, let I me tell to- you, I was I was scrapping. I mean, not not starting DMI, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. But as a songwriter, when I moved to LA, I was living off of nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could barely pay the rent. I I. You know, I just had enough to get through the month, but I was tenacious. Okay. And if I was on the Warner Brothers lot and I was able, yeah, I was sitting mm-hmm. in a meeting and I was able to hear something about a need over here of this and that, I can do it. Yeah. I can do it. And maybe half the time I had never done it before in my life, but I knew I had the confidence inside of me to know, yes, I can do that. I just need to make some phone calls. I need to do a little homework and I know I can do it. I mean, anything with the music and the business of music, I am fairly confident in and um, been there, done that, pretty much seen it all. And I have a million stories, but it's it's just about I find with women, it's particularly I mean, there's men like this, too, but it, it's kind of like, you know, in politics and, and with issues and things where you say, you know, those that are complacent are those that are just as guilty as those who are doing the opposite. It's the same thing. You can't sit there 
and moan and groan about how you're not getting a break. You can't sit there and moan and groan about, well, I was rejected and I was rejected. I was rejected. You know, you got to get out there and hustle. And I, and I mean, hustle in, in a, I'm saying that respectfully, Mm -hmm. you know, but you know, I am, I've always been a networker and a hustler for what I believe in. So, um, you know, it's it's just about, it's also about what I have found, I think I have the hardest time with now, is being able to focus, because I have, for me personally, where I am in life, I have so many opportunities coming at me that, and I don't, and I don't mean that in a braggy way at all, but they may all look shiny and pretty. Yeah. But you really have to weed out that apple cart because my daughter gets home to me about this and my partner does because I used to say yes to everything Uh because I wanted to help people. You know, oh, I need you to come and will you come speak at such and such or will you come and do this or that? I go, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah." Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, I don't do that anymore, but I have a hard time saying no. And I think in general, too. That's the issue that maybe is more gender specific yeah. of just saying no, because you feel like you want to help that person or you want to help that cause. But what happens for me is I start going down rabbit holes. Yeah. yeah. And when I go down rabbit holes, all of a sudden I wake up and I'm and I've lost the I, I've left the road of what my true passion is. I'm off into other people's passions. Yeah. That reminds me of something that um you you were talking about. Um, in an interview I watched of yours when you were talking about your father specifically, because when you, you start getting all these opportunities, you're flooded with opportunities. It's almost like you have these golden handcuffs on, right? Because you could do everything everyone wants you. So you were talking in an interview about um, your father coming to you and saying, if you leave this, you can have all of this money and you can have my oil business if you just run it, right? And you had a moment where you had to say, I actually want to do this. But then at the same time, even in doing what you would be doing, which is you had an artist management business at a point before, um, you talked about not being able to access your creativity and that being the reason. So that was another moment where you had to go back to what your true self was. What was that conversation with yourself like? Well, it was serious, but it was quick because it's that conversation, like I always say, my daddy wasn't. Um, the devil and I wasn't mm-hmm. Jesus Christ because it was like that yeah. sur- that looking at the mountain, you know, saying you can have all of this. And I know that he did that out of the goodness of his heart. And he worried about me. He couldn't stand that I lived in California, California. <laughs> and um, where all the beatniks live. Is that what he used to say? <laughs> yep. Where all the beatniks he, lived. And he wanted me out of California. He wanted me back in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And and I knew it was coming from a good place. And believe me, it's tempting for anybody, for any of y'all, for any of us, if your parents said, you know what, I know you've been in Chicago chasing for a while now, chasing back, your dreams. Come back. But you know, you got a mortgage. Yep. You got some debt. Mm-hmm. You've got blah, blah, blah. You come over here and run my business for me. I'll pay off all your credit cards. I'll pay off your mortgage, I'll buy you a house here, you buy a house here, I'll pay for it. I'll give you a great salary. You'll be golden. It, you have to think about that. I thought about it all of maybe two minutes, two or three minutes. And I was in such shock, first of all. And then second of all, I just knew, you know, and I just started saying to him how grateful I was. First thing I said is how thankful I am and how honored I am that you would want me to do this. And I know that it means the world to you, but I would have to sell my soul. And I said, I could not move back to that little town in Mississippi. And I said, and I couldn't do music. I don't mm. know anything else but music, Daddy. I said, I don't know anything else. And I don't want anything else but music. And I said, and then as I started saying it, 
it started pissing me off because then I started thinking. <laughs> I'm getting chills. Yeah, yeah. And then I started thinking, he doesn't respect yeah. what I've accomplished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, because I was already successful. And he doesn't respect what I've accomplished or what I do every day. He just thinks that's. He doesn't believe you. He doesn't believe me. There's a silly yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And in his heart, he's trying to set me up so I'll be taken care of. But also, he doesn't believe that what I do is worth anything. That's what I felt. So then I got pissed. And then I was like, you know, but... And then I said to him, you obviously don't respect what I do and don't understand what I do. And he goes, oh, bullshit. And I said, <laughs> and I said, and I said, but it doesn't fill me, Daddy. It doesn't fulfill me. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. You sound like a girl talking now. That sounds like bullshit. That's what he would say. Wow. Interesting. And I said, well, I said, I appreciate it very much. But, and I'm sorry, but I have to say no. Wow. wow. You have to be really self-driven and that's something that really stands out about you. It was hard yeah. because he walked away mad and our relationship was never the same. Wow. I but, mean, I think it's 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 tough to not follow along the path your parents want you to. I mean, it's always tough for any young person, you know, to not to to fight that. They're fighting it. You know, even even my own children, you know. Or just the obvious path. Or the obvious path, the easy one. The one that's like, well, here's the money. Yeah. You know. I mean, exactly. most people, I would maybe not most, but I would say majority of people yeah. would take that offer. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think the other thing is when I when I when I think about this in the context, you know, of entrepreneurship, um you know, it's, it's, it's hard. So a lot of people that are, that are entrepreneurs, they have a day job and their entrepreneur is their, is their side hustle. And to actually, you know, take the time and have the courage to say no to the money train, to realize their dream is literally the scariest proposition they could ever possibly think, especially um, coming from their, their home environment that, that says to them, doctors, lawyers, you know, accountants, go work in finance. You could go work at Goldman Sachs and be like a billionaire. I mean, even the visuals on television, you know, things like that. So, I mean, to, to turn that down, to basically say I'm turning down my trust fund because I want to live my life on my own terms, my own dream, um, is it's a real tough, it's a tough decision to make. And I feel like, as Esther just said, mm-hmm. um, you know, your confidence and bravery in general um, is something I would like to put in a little, you know, yeah. little container and sprinkle it like fairy dust on me, you know, because um, um, we all have challenges as as small business owners and entrepreneurs, especially when we're in unrepresented and marginalized groups, because we don't have some of the fortune that you've had when you go into a room and even have the chance for someone to look at you and say, you can do that. I mean, to even get to the room alone is an absolute battle that some of us never have the opportunity to try to fight. That's that's eye opening and it's riveting. And yes, I guess if I had ever really thought about that, I would know that it's just I have always been a, um, you know, it's like and I think this is the way I've thought of myself is that I've always been a salmon swimming upstream, whether it's my sexuality, whether it's my career. I was told I could never be anything in the music business, get get out of the clouds, you know. I'm saying by my my dad, you know, stop thinking about that ridiculous stuff, you know, whatever. I never had his emotional support in any kind of way with that. Um, so where did you get it then? I mean, is this something that you were, you feel like think, it was a God-given talent for you? Or did you, were you looking around and talking to people or, or reading books? Or, I mean, what was happening? I just, I am hard-headed. And I'm a scrapper, and I just know, like, if I put my mind to something, I'm going to do it. And you tell me I can't do it, it's like waving a red flag over yeah. here, you know? <laughs> and it's 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 just how – it's my DNA. It's just much to, I think, my mother's love and my father's, like, you know, anger mm-hmm. because and, – and, and a lot of times it's worked out for me, and sometimes it's happened – has not, but I, I just, and I'm still that way today. You know, you tell me I can't do something, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. 
or I'm going to die trying. And I just feel like that no matter what it was when I was growing up, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't play the drums. Oh, I'm going to play the drums. Yeah. yeah. You know, or or even being. You're saying, yeah, like it's familiar. Yeah, or even, or just, even being a, yeah. even being gay and being exactly. told and being a pioneer that you can't have children. This was back in the eighties, you know. Oh, same-sex couples can't have children. It's against the law, and da 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 da. And the infertility clinics won't won't um, inseminate yeah. same-sex couple. Really? Mm. Okay. I'm gonna have a ton of kids. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> gonna, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, we're gonna, we're gonna have kids. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna have the kids. One. Something that I really wanted to get your thoughts on is something that I I saw when I was reading about your company, because we're talking about sound, um, which is not something that I I think about outside of podcasts and just listening to music. But it's not something that comes to a lot of people's mind when they think about branding. But it's so present that it's almost like it it just becomes part of the landscape and you forget that it's there. and when you describe what your company does on the website, it says um, loyalty is brought by emotion. And the easiest way to do that is through music. That is like flipped a switch in my head. I was like, ah, that makes perfect sense. Where do you see, because we're in the age of things like podcasting, right? Where everything is so accessible mm-hmm. and everyone's like telling everyone else, you should start a podcast because people, you know, your book several people said I listened to it on audiobook you know because it's something that meets you where you are and you can do other things and it can be just there in the atmosphere how do you see the evolution of sound playing into branding as we're moving forward into this age where everything is immersive and experiential are you seeing anything changing from your perspective of you know being on that bigger brand side well, I just feel that in what we preach every day and are out there preaching and selling, and I'm selling it because, and we do it a lot because I feel like we're experts in it, and I feel like I know it like the back of my hand, and that is that um, we trademarked years ago Sound DNA. Yeah. And we yeah. create your Sound DNA. Mm-hmm. And so with the brand, we go in and if you do, and we have T-shirts that say no random acts of music, um, but if you're a brand and, you know, you're doing this music over here for this pop-up event, you're doing this music over here for this concert, you're using this music over here for your commercial, and then you're using this music over here for your whatever, your in-store you are all over the place, and not only are you all over the place and confusing your consumer or not even touching them at all, but you're wasting a truckload of money. Yeah, I always use the example of McDonald's. If you get a new CMO or you get a new ad agency, do you think that McDonald's is going to say if the ad agency or the creative at the brand at the um, new CMO says, you know? I think those golden arches need to be purple now. Yeah, I do too. That would never happen. Of course, because they have brand equity in those golden arches. Nobody has to say McDonald's. Nobody has to do anything. You can be a mile away and see those golden arches and it, and you know that that's McDonald's. If you can see it on TV, you can whatever. But you people don't brands don't treat music that way or sound that way the audio the audio corridor they don't treat the same way as a visual corridor and it says equally from mm-hmm. all the study we've done and all the research and we have massive amounts on yeah. it over the years it is equally important but is such a mist because what happens is you have so many everybody's an expert in music now you know, I always say when I'm talking about DMI, you can walk into, you can walk here at Google and you can walk around to all the cubicles. Everybody's going to be a, a, a 
an expert curator. They've got their own playlist. They do this. That. Everybody's an expert music person, mm-hmm. expert curator. But I tell brands, it doesn't matter what you like or what you listen to or what your daughter likes or what, because everybody tries to be, I find a lot of times at the agencies, people go, oh, well, my daughter says it's such and such. I don't really care (laughs) what your daughter likes or your sister or your wife or whatever, because I'm not selling to them. It is about your consumer. And what we do is we figure out geographically um, and uh, every every other way from geographically to um, demographically who that person is, day parts, what they're doing at certain times of day, when, where, in the store, yada, yada, and or whatever that promotion may be. And we're targeting instead of shooting with, you know, a wide spray of something. Wow. We're shooting very, very narrow so that we have a better chance of reaching that consumer emotionally. Wow. I love all the mm-hmm. data analysis you're bringing up. And this is all happening in your head. This isn't a Google search. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like Google. Yeah. You're like Google, Tina. Um, so... You started off with one person, two people, three, four, five. What happened? You you started small, then you scaled. What was that process like? Was well, it was it easy for you? Was it hard? When did you realize I need more people? You know, I'm just sort of looking for the journey from your beautiful ability to to monetize your creativity, which is what this is, um, and make it a business and sustain other people's lives because you have a lot of people working for you, and you also work for a lot of people. So, mm-hmm. how did you get to that bigger place? Well, it's just the company started growing. You know, I started out with an assistant and one person I hired. Wow. And this person, I felt like, I didn't know where this was going, but I knew that somebody needed to be able to to um, logistically be able to keep up with all the stuff that was happening with the brand and what we were mm-hmm. doing. This Wrangler. Was, yeah, this was all in my head. Mm. So I had these interviews. I had enough money to hire one person. And other than an assistant and the person I hired who ended up being fantastic and stayed with me for the first, like, I don't know, 17, 18 years. Oh my gosh. She ran logistics for a trucking company. And so all she did all day long, because see, I needed somebody at the time we were pressing CDs. You realize you were pressing CDs. Like by hand? No, no, what? no. I'm saying we you were, were making selling CDs. Oh, you were selling CDs. We're okay. selling CDs. Because I knew people so, that used to make them too, though. They no, would no, actually no. make them. No, we were selling CDs. So I had to have somebody knowing, bidding that stuff out. Yeah. Because everything is down to the half cents. Right. And being able to track all that, being able to ship it, being able to get it where it's supposed to be at Barnes and Nobles, at this, oh, at that, blah, 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 blah. You know, because we were our own everything. Yeah. It wasn't like we had a record label doing it. We were shipping all the merchandise. We were doing. So anyway. And this was, which, what, this was, um, when was this happening? What year was that around? 97. Goodness gracious. Okay. So. Wow. I hired <laughs> off the whip. This woman came in. I could tell she was really smart. She had been doing trucking logistics for like 20 years, but oh she goodness. was tired of it and wanted to do something else. But she was like a drill sergeant, and she was I t- could tell she was like take no prisoner wow. and really good. And I thought, well, she doesn't know the music business, but I can teach she her that yeah. because I don't know what she does. Mm. And she stayed with me for the first, like I said, probably 17, 18 years. And then it just started growing and then the woman that came in who had been at a label, I needed somebody to be in a, a receptionist at the front. They tiny little offices. But be a receptionist front. So she came out and she was working at A&M. But she didn't want, she liked what she heard I was doing. But she did not want to commute anymore to the other side of L.A. And she wanted to be able to stay in Pasadena. And she said, I want to come to work for you. And I said, well, the only thing I have is a, a receptionist. We're tiny. Mm-hmm. It's just two other people and myself. And she goes, okay, I'll take it. And I go, you're way overqualified. You were over singles at this label, big label. And she was like, no, I want it. 
Well, she started with me and she ended up becoming, I supported her going and getting her HR degree and stuff. She ended up becoming the head of HR (laughs) and she was with me. Um, about the same amount of time, 18 years. But we grew, and we grew fairly quickly over the years. And then my, I started to say fatal flaw. It wasn't fatal, but a big mistake I made was I was, when people, when companies started outsourcing a lot and not having everything all right there, I I just didn't know that world, and that world scared me. So I wanted everything right there under the roofs of our campus, which at that time were about 20,000 square feet. I wanted everybody right there. I wanted everybody to come to work every day. I wanted to be able to walk around those buildings and see everybody doing what we were doing. That's always a challenge for um, entrepreneurs and small business owners because, you know, we look for clones, not compliments. And then when you look for clones, sometimes you get distracted because they're not actually helping you build the way it needs to be built. And then sometimes you start thinking, you know, everybody starts thinking the same. So that is sometimes problematic. And I'm I'm not sure when I hear your story, if some of the people that you're working for were strategizing with you the way that you strategize with yourself. Because maybe well, was, was that were, happening but... at all? Because some I know with the, with when I think about the way Esther and I work. Because I love your story around this. Because um, you know I think very similarly to some of the work that Esther does for the company, my company Bird Creative. You know she has the ability to create strategies in her head that are different than my strategies, but we're kind of moving in the same direction. That's really helpful, and we talk about it a lot. Um, I'm kind of curious. You know, you said your quote unquote fatal mistake was you know, not starting to outsource, is it, what was the conversation happening with these three amazing people, these two women that you brought in that actually helped you blow the business up? Was it, was it, was it conversations that weren't taking place or what are some of the things that led you to that, that fatal flaw stuff? Because that sounds like a decision that you made alone. It's not a decision I made alone because I had, um, a lot of, close women friends that ran big companies that would say to me, Tina, really? You don't outsource that? Mm. Or really? You think, really? Why do you want to have all those employees? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a lot. I'm not saying I'm a, I was a, I'm a tiny little ship compared to big companies. You know, mm-hmm. I had at the most employees I ever had, it was like 85. I mean, Tina, really 85. What I loved about Tina's first hires is that she hired two women <laughs> as her first hires. Oh, uh, there's, this is a funny story, too. The first 17 people I hired were women. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And yeah. so people at that I did business with and, well, that I knew mm-hmm. and that a lot of my friends and stuff were going, Tina, do you realize you have all women? And I would say... No, I didn't really think about that. And then somebody would laugh and joke and go, well, of course she has all women. She's a lesbian. Oh, goodness And I would be, oh, my God, that is so wrong on so many levels. And they go, well, why would you hire only women? I said, because every time I would interview. So the best ones. Yeah, that's what I would say. (laughs) It was the truth. That process never crossed my mind. When people would come in and interview with me. It was like I would just choose who I thought was the best person for the job. It had nothing to do with gender. But then as we grew and got bigger, then it was it evened more out, right. you know. Yeah. And I say it probably even went the other direction some. But, yeah, the when first, she started first 17 were women. Wow. Yeah. Since when she started scaling, it kind of changed a little bit. I like that you were also able to see, especially with your first hire, because uh, something very difficult for people is making good hiring decisions. Yeah. And oftentimes... The oh, person, I made some bad ones, though, too. I'm sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> the person that um, seems good on paper or doesn't seem good on paper doesn't always work out in practice because here you are, you're running a, a music company, but the person who ended up working for you came from the trucking industry. And, you know, on paper, that doesn't make logical sense, but there's some discernment there where you're able to be like, these are transferable skills that are going to exactly. fit into what I'm able to see. I needed an air traffic controller and that's what she was. Exactly. You're clear on what you needed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So talk to me about um, 
times when you felt like you were in a rut? Because you've talked a little bit about realizing, oh, you're just running your business, putting out fires, being the operator, and you're not able to do the thing that you love. That's the thing that keeps Mm -hmm. you going. Um, What other moments have you been in a rut? How did you recognize it? And how did you get out of it? There were probably three pivotal points. Um, One was way back in the day when I was in Mississippi and when I was trying to get to Nashville and um, to write and some, and a guy at a studio that I respected said to me, Tina, you know, every band and every club because you've played it between um, Texas and North Carolina. And he said, you should start a booking agency. It's all cash. Everybody likes you because they want somebody honest and there's nobody honest in the agency business. So I said, okay. So I rented a little room. It's about the size of a bathroom and the bottom in the boiler room of a club. And I got two out of work musicians and I put three telephones on the table. They were dial telephones at the time. And we sat there and started dialing for dollars. Well, fast forward five years, because all I was trying to do was get to Nashville with some money in my pocket to be able to write full time. Fast forward five years. I have a house that's paid for on the on a golf course at a country club. I have a, a BMW. I say this because it's funny. And I was, you know, in my 20s. And I got a call from a band that was broken down on the road at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I remember I just laid in bed and thought that night, what am I doing? I have golden handcuffs on. I have sold my soul. Yeah, I'm making a lot of money. My daddy's happy with what I'm doing. But I am booking bands. Mm -hmm. I have an agency. I sold my house that week. That week. Because, you know, in Mississippi back then, you just, somebody wanted to buy it. You said, yeah, you shook hands. They gave you the money. Then you signed a contract. And that was it. You moved out. You moved out. And I moved moved to Nashville. What kind of a world is this, Tina? Oh, my God. I guess you live here now. What in the world? It's like So I I moved to Nashville. Mm hmm. And I never looked back. And um, I sold my company, too. Wow. Um, And anyway, that was the first moment. That was one. Because I said, oh, my God, what have I done? Second moment was in L.A. when I first started having a lot of success in TV and writing and producing music for television. And I was doing three series at one time. And there, once again, I had climbed that rat barrel (laughs) to be successful in LA when I went there making no money and then became a successful TV composer, producer, music director. Um, I was making a lot of money and I thought, okay, I could retire in when I'm 40 Mm -hmm. have a big house in Beverly Hills. That's not who I am. I came here to write for records I came here to be a record songwriter and producer Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting here mindlessly with no creativity anymore just churning out like a music machine Mm -hmm. music because I got three shows going at one time I got to get out of this rat wheel and most importantly my daughter was two years old I was barely seeing my daughter I was barely getting any sleep so I walked away from that business and that was huge. That was that was a big jump because I just went from making a crap load of money to nada. And um That's two. That's two. And then the third one was when I jumped off the um but the and then I had my first hit with Dion Warwick. And then after so anyway Everything started going uphill from that. But it was tough, like, for about two years. And then the third was when I left mainstream music business because of this idea of this company, DMI. And I left. People thought I was crazy. They were like, Tina, you can't leave and then come back. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because you're out of sight, out of mind. Everything that you've worked for and all these artists you were writing and producing for and blah, 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 blah. You're, you're, you know, you're committing suicide you you can't do this and I was like 
it's it's going to go away. And y'all just aren't seeing it. This is going to go away. You better recreate yourself. I love it. And I jumped off that ship and I started DMI. And now DMI has been around for 22 years. And DMI is, you know, I have great people there now. We outsource pretty much, Mm -hmm. you know, two-thirds of everything. And most people work from home now. And not everybody, but most people do. And, you know, it's, hey, it's fine with me now. I have evolved. I I am not a, you know, micromanager. Um, I, but it's also allowed me now to do the things creatively that I have been missing, like writing this book right. and like working, creating some film and TV projects and doing my, um, being able to spend time with my social active. I mean, you've had so many pivots. Yeah. In your career. But it's about knowing. Yeah. It's like knowing when to move. Yeah. It's about knowing when to get mm-hmm. out and change. And you did say earlier, though, that you are very in touch with your gut instincts, which mm-hmm. I think many people through their um, desperation, whatever that desperation is for them, they don't pay attention to that. And mm-hmm. And so I think about my own career and the way that I built it from when I started, when I got out of college and started working in corporate, every decision I made was looked upon as, is this going to get me to my next step or not? If it's not, then I got to get out right now. And it wasn't so much your well, that was... your vision of, of, I don't see the future here. It was more like, my mind was more about, I have to create a future and everything I do has to be in in, 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 in that direction, even if I didn't know exactly what my future no, was. No, but that's smart. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I didn't have, I don't think that I had a choice. I mean, I, I feel like given you know, my environment and um, the world that I was living in, which at the time was very, very corporate, not dissimilar from my clients now, but now I have my own company with Bird Creative, but um, working in spaces where there weren't any women, there weren't any people of color except in the mailroom, you mm-hmm. know? And so um, I just had to be very, very intentional and forceful about the type of work that I was doing every moment. And I had to develop relationships that were, re- that were relevant that I knew would help me and that were authentic. I looked for authentic relationships right. everywhere I turned. We would love to know who are some of the amazing um, musicians you work with. I mean, you've been behind the scenes, which is also something hard for entrepreneurs to live with. They want to be in the front and we do. Live oh, in I've per- never wanted to be the lead singer. I know we're in a, perform- no, 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 no. We're in a performance culture now. So even if you're behind the scenes, a lot of entrepreneurs are still now required to be in the front because people want to know who they're buying from. Right. But, but that's another conversation. Maybe we're going to have you come back for a podcast too right. with Tina Clark, but um, or maybe we'll help you launch your own podcast series okay. and we'll be behind the scenes and you'll be in the front. I want, we do want to know some of the, name some of the artists that you've worked with that are like absolutely. You just breezed over Dion. I know you did. That's, like, what, that's what I don't want to, I don't want to let you. <laughs> I don't want to make you lose your train of thought, but that you're like, totally, yeah, my first hit with, I know, with I was Dionne like, Warwick. Dionne I'm like, Warwick, what? <laughs> first hit? I'm like, she can't just, blue, she can't just go by, by that and not share. So tell us. I didn't us. even know. Y'all probably knew at your age. Know, so Dionne I Warwick. have Dionne Warwick on <laughs> vinyl. Yeah, I have Dionne Warwick on vinyl. <laughs> Dionne is amazing. So, so, so just like running. Okay, I'll just like run you a list top. just off the top of my head. We're here. Everybody Ooh. just see your, we're here with the Tina Clark. So go ahead. Dionne Warwick. Yes. Kayla Bell, Gladys Knight, Stephanie Mills, Yolanda Adams, Aretha Franklin, Natalie Cole, wow. Shaka Khan, Patty Austin, um, Leanne Rhymes. Um, I've written the theme song for NASA. That's right. I what is re- NASA's theme song? Is it just it's called Way Up There? <laughs> Called Way right, Up and There. Then NASA, and then Kayla that, Bell. Google it. Listen to also, it. And then also, you did. You wrote something for McDonald's too. One of their famous. Songs, Have you had right? your break today? Have you had your break today? Um, oh. For I um, was the United wrote Airlines? Hillary Clinton's. Um, um, the State Department had commissioned me to write her um, theme song for all the work that she had done with women, and uh-huh. her legacy piece. Um, I have written for movies everything from hope floats to um 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 where the heart is to uh 
God. It's so much. It is like a, a smorgasbord. That's what I was trying to, my, my best, best friend's, friend's wedding. wedding. Oh, that's it, oh, You know, time. twins, et cetera, et cetera. That was back in the day. Stunning. And then you're also, you've also won Grammys. With Natalie Cole. Wow. And um, how is that? I mean, that's incredible. And nominated with, for the thing I wrote and produced on Patty for NASA. Um, and um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's been a an, lot. It's an amazing, it's been an amazing journey. It continues to be because so many of these women I am still very good friends with mm-hmm. and, and um, see, and obviously I was devastated when Natalie passed. I was devastated when Aretha passed um, and they were monumental figures in my career I originally went to L.A. in the 70s with Stevie Wonder. And then um, Hal David is who took me under his wings. Wow. I mean. <laughs> um, when I actually moved to L.A., Hal David of Hal David and Burt Backrack. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm it's there's a lot to talk about. That's going to be my second book. I cannot um, wait to I do that. Which is going yeah, to be my journey in the music business as a white southern Gay female. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yeah. Don't forget Christian. <laughs> Christian white Southern gay Christian female. With an excellent That's haircut. It's gonna be my and in this first place I've said that. And what what is the what are you working on now? What's the new piece? What is your new exciting thing that you can tell us about that you're working on that you're um, really excited about. Well, um, I mean, aside from the fact that you're working on a new book, but what's the other? Well, I haven't started working on the book yet, but that's that's what the next book will be. Okay. Um, I just um, finished uh, working on a documentary that I was asked to write um, the theme song for that I'm really proud of. It's called Clarkston, and it's about the. It's in Georgia. It's about this. Um, little tiny area right in the outskirts of Atlanta and it's if you google it and look at it you'll see but it's about it's the most refugees in any particular square miles of anywhere in the country and the and it is about how all of these people from all of these dozens and dozens and dozens of countries live together work together pray together and they all get along, and they all respect each other's beliefs and faiths. It's 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 amazing. It is it will this documentary is amazing. It's um is directed and created by um, Aaron Bernhardt, and so I wrote the theme song, which is called "We Belong." Debbie Allen and I have been we have worked together for years, and um, she is my sister. And um, we're starting a new production company. Um, Debbie Allen. You're starting a production company with Debbie Allen? Mm-hmm. Wow. Esther. And, um, I'm just looking at the shoes. Sorry. And it is. <laughs> wow. And it's about, it's about um, projects that are going to move the mind, heart, and soul, you yep. know? Yep. And it's all about, you know, TV and film projects and live, live theater projects, too. Wow. That move, that move you. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the one of the that. one of the joys I have in listening to your conversation is that you're making all these bold moves on an ongoing, sustained basis and you're not stopping. You're a I force. Mean, you're a force. You're not stopping. You're not giving up. I can only hope. And you look great. Exactly. Thank I you. mean, there's just there's just so much there's so much to learn. Um, I feel like you could write a book, not just, you know, this beautiful Southern discomfort, a memoir you know, by Tina Clark, you, and not about your second book about all the, the successes and accolades you've received in the music business, but you could write a book that would be a training manual for, you know, how to make it as an entrepreneur and how to pivot multiple times and still keep moving forward and still keep transforming and changing and evolving. Cause this is a conversation that needs to be had over and over again with entrepreneurs. And that's why we are so glad that you came yeah, on our podcast. Thank you. I can't even it's been, express. Um, it's been amazing, and I'm excited to come back and do another one, and I'll be in the audience clapping when y'all win some big podcast awards. <laughs> yes, I mean, we'd love to do that. We keep having conversations like this. I know, right? And well, if good any... luck, ladies. I have... 
full faith in y'all on <laughs> so many levels. I'm so Appreciate glad. It. And and for any any listeners that have any follow up questions um, for Tina Clark for Miss Clark, we will absolutely get them to her, and yep. she will send the answers back, and we will post them on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and um, it'll be great. Send us a message on Instagram, Honest Field Guide. Absolutely, the Honest Field Guide. Um, so thank you very much, Tina and Esther. This has been a tremendous conversation. Wow, it's been amazing. I've right? learned so much, and this is great. I hope we get to have more awesome conversations like this, but what a way to start it. I mean, we really set the bar with this one. We did set the bar, Tina. <laughs> Yay. All right, thank you so much. I'm Esther Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. 